kids up through grade five. You can head on back a little bit later in our service, our third through fifth graders. They will come back and rejoin us as we celebrate and observe the Lord's Supper. From 1984 to 1995, there was a show on television called Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. Does anybody remember that show? I remember watching Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous when I was growing up. Uh, the show was hosted by a guy named Robin Leach, and every week uh, Robin would go and he would, he would give viewers a glimpse into how the rich and the famous lived. So Robin would go and he would visit movie stars and, and entertainers, professional athletes, business ty uh, tycoons, and he would give us a glimpse into how these people lived. So he would show us how they lived in their mansions and cruised on their yachts, and he would show us how these, these folks took uh, vacations to these exotic destinations on their private jets, and, and he would show us the fancy sports cars that they drove and, and the designer clothes that they would wear. Now, to be featured on Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, you had to have a net worth of at least $50 million. And remember, that was 35 years ago. So when it came to, to who they could feature on the show, uh, the producers didn't have a large pool of people to choose from. But they found enough to run the show for 12 years, and, and Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, it became a big hit. And the show was such a, a big hit that throughout the 80s and 90s and even into the 2000s, this show generated several spin-offs. Now, I got to wondering, what if there was a spin-off that was called Lifestyles of Those Who Lead People to the Lord? Who would be featured in that show? Now, based on some statistics that I came across this past week, I'm afraid the producers might have a tough time finding people to feature on the show. Uh, the pool of people that they could choose from uh, might be kind of limited. You see, there was a recent study that was conducted by LifeWay Research, and, and they found that only 39% of evangelical Christians make an effort to share their faith and lead people to the Lord on a regular basis. And if that statistic is true, that means a majority, a majority of Christians, well, sharing their faith and leading people to the Lord just doesn't characterize their lifestyle. And when LifeWay published these results, they called them distressing. And I agree with that assessment. I agree that the results are distressing because leading people to the Lord should characterize the lifestyle of every believer. You see, leading people to the Lord, it should characterize the lifestyle of every believer because Jesus has commanded his followers to share their faith and to make disciples wherever they go. In Matthew 28, 19, Jesus commanded his followers to go and make disciples of all nations. And that's a command to go out and share our faith and lead people to the Lord wherever we go. And then in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, Jesus told his followers that they will be his witnesses all around the world. And if you remember when we talked about that verse a few months ago, it's not just a descriptive statement about Jesus' followers. That verse is also a command for us to go out and tell others about him and lead people to him. So Jesus' commands, they make one thing clear. Jesus expects his followers to have a lifestyle that is characterized by sharing our faith and leading people to him. Now, if there had been a show on TV called Lifestyles of Those Who Lead People to the Lord on TV 2,000 years ago, uh, there's a guy in the Bible who definitely would have been featured on the show, and his name is Philip. We talked about Philip last week when we looked at the first half of chapter 8, and today, as we continue our study in the book of Acts, we're going to talk about Philip some more as we look at the second half of chapter 8. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to take it out, and you can open it up to Acts chapter 8. The book of Acts is in the New Testament. Uh, you've got the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then right after that you'll find the book of Acts, and we'll be in chapter 8 today. 
so as you're turning to Acts chapter 8, let me just remind you that Philip, uh, the guy that we talked about last week, the guy we'll be talking about today, he was one of the seven men who was chosen by the church in Jerusalem to help take care of the widows, uh, the widows that were being neglected in the daily distribution of food and money. The church chose seven men to help take care of them, and Philip was one of those guys. But then when widespread and violent persecution broke out in Jerusalem, Philip departed from there, and he went to the city of Samaria, and when he went there, he told people about Jesus, and, and he started leading people to the Lord. You see, leading people to the Lord was a lifestyle for Philip. Wherever Philip went, he made an effort to lead people to the Lord. Later on in the book of Acts, and 20 years down the road from what we're looking at today, in Acts chapter 21, verse 8, Philip's going to be called Philip the Evangelist. And he'll be called the Evangelist because of all his consistent efforts to share his faith and lead people to the Lord. Well, here in the second half of Acts chapter 8, Luke is going to give us a glimpse into one of Philip's evangelistic encounters. And as we look at this passage today, we're going to learn how we can make leading people to the Lord a lifestyle. So let me read the second half of Acts chapter 8 now, and then we'll talk about it. If you're able, would you please stand as I read God's holy and inspired word to us this morning? I'm going to be reading in Acts chapter 8. I'm going to start at verse 26 and read to the end of the chapter. So here's what God says to us in Acts chapter 8, starting at verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, well, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does this prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized them. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much this morning for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have revealed yourself to us through your word and that you have communicated your truth to us through your word. And I pray now that your spirit would open our hearts and our minds to understand this passage of scripture and to help us live it out so that we will have lifestyles that are characterized by leading people to the Lord. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you. You may be seated. So as we look at Philip's encounter with this Ethiopian eunuch today, the main point that I want to make is this. Because Jesus commands his followers to make disciples wherever they go, we must make leading people to the Lord a lifestyle. Because Jesus commands his followers to make disciples wherever they go, we must make leading people to the Lord a lifestyle. Now, how do we do that? How do we make leading people to the Lord 
a lifestyle. Well, based on Philip's encounter with this Ethiopian eunuch, I'm going to give you five answers to that question. So how do we make leading people to the Lord a lifestyle? Well, first, to make leading people to the Lord a lifestyle, we must say yes to God's prompting. We must say yes to God's prompting. Take a look at verse 26. In verse 26, an angel of the Lord says to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that leads down from Jerusalem to Gaza. And then notice the comment that Luke makes right after that. He says, this is a desert place. Now, I don't know if you can see it on the map there, but, uh, but, but Philip was in a city of Samaria about 30 miles north of Jerusalem. And then Gaza, it's a city about 30 miles west of Jerusalem. And there was a road that ran from Jerusalem to Gaza. And this road, it ran through the desert, and not very many people traveled on it. So an angel comes to Philip in the city of Samaria, and he tells him, go hang out on that lonely desert road that goes from Jerusalem down to Gaza. Now, if I was Philip, and if God was prompting me to leave the city of Samaria and go to this desert road, do you know what would be going through my mind? If I were Philip, I'd be thinking, God, are you crazy? Do you really want me to leave this, this big city where, where multitudes of people are coming to faith in Christ when I tell them about Jesus? Do you, do you really want me to leave this city? Do you really want me to go hang out on that lonely desert road? That road that's in the middle of nowhere? God, this doesn't make any sense at all to me. I imagine that Philip was, was thinking something along these lines when the angel told him to leave the city of Samaria and go to this desert road. But look at what Philip does in the first part of verse 27. In the first part of verse 27, it says that he rose and went. Philip obeyed. When God called Philip to leave the city of Samaria, when God called Philip to go to this desert road that ran between Jerusalem and Gaza, Philip said yes to God. Philip went where God wanted him to go, and he did that because he believed that God was calling him to go there, and he believed that God had a plan for him there. Now, one of my favorite authors is a guy named Warren Wiersbe. In the 1980s, you, you might have heard him on the radio. He was the host of a show that was called Back to the Bible. Well, Warren Wiersbe, he also wrote a lot of books about the Bible, and his books have been very helpful to me in my walk with Jesus. In fact, some of the first books I bought when I became a Christian were, were Warren Wiersbe's books. Well, in one of his books, Warren tells a story that shows the importance of saying yes to God's prompting. Warren says it was late one afternoon, and, and he sensed God's spirit prompting him to go visit a lady who had been attending his church regularly. Now, even though this lady was coming to his church regularly, she was not a Christian. She had never put her faith in Jesus. She had never made a commitment to follow him. Now, when Warren Wiersbe sensed that God's spirit was prompting him to go visit this lady late one afternoon, he says at first he started making all kinds of excuses for why he shouldn't do this. He said, ah, it's late in the afternoon. It's probably not a good time for her. She's probably making dinner for her family. But after a few minutes of debate and a few minutes of questioning what God was calling him to do, Warren said yes to God, and he went to go visit this lady. And so when he got to the lady's house, Warren found that the lady had been burdened by her sins all day long, and she wanted to know how she could be relieved of that burden. Well, Warren was able to tell the lady about Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and the blood that he shed and how if, if she put her faith in that sacrifice and committed to following Jesus, then all her sins would be forgiven and she would have peace with God. And so the lady did that. She opened her heart to Christ and she received God's forgiveness and she became a Christian that afternoon. 
Now, Warren says in his book that at first, what God was prompting him to do didn't really make a whole lot of sense to him. The timing of the day was just all wrong. But after the fact, he said, believe me, I was glad when I obeyed the leading of God's spirit. You see, Warren Wiersbe was able to lead this lady to the Lord because he said yes to God's prompting. And Philip was able to lead the Ethiopian to the Lord because he said yes to God's prompting. And so I want to ask, who might you lead to the Lord by saying yes to God's prompting? If God would prompt you to go somewhere or to, or to talk to someone, will you do it? Will you do it even if it doesn't make sense? You see, saying yes to God's prompting is an essential practice if you want to make leading people to the Lord a lifestyle. It's an essential practice because when we're open to it, God will lead us to people whom he has prepared to receive Jesus. The people just need someone to tell them about Jesus. God prepared this Ethiopian to receive Jesus. And God had prepared the lady in Warren's story to receive Jesus. They just needed somebody to come and tell them the good news about Jesus. So you might ask, well, how do I know when God's prompting me? God doesn't always send an angel to us like he did to Philip. Usually God will use his spirit who lives within us to prompt us. And the way we know when God's prompting us, the way we, we can discern that, is we've got to spend time with God in prayer, and we've got to spend time with God in his word. The more we're talking to God in prayer, the more we're hearing from God in his word, the better we'll get at discerning when and how God's spirit is prompting us. And then once we discern that God is prompting us to go somewhere or to speak to someone, if we're going to say yes to God, we've got to exercise faith. Another one of my favorite authors is a guy named Philip Yancey. And in one of his books called Disappointment with God, Philip Yancey says this. He says, faith means believing in advance what only makes sense in reverse. He said, faith means believing in advance what will only make sense in reverse. And look at how true that is in our passage. At first, it didn't make any sense at all for Philip to leave the city in Samaria where multitudes of people are coming to faith in Christ. It didn't make any sense for Philip to leave that city and go to this lonely desert road in the middle of nowhere that ran between Jerusalem and Gaza. But I'll tell you what, it made sense after he met and talked to the Ethiopian. And at first, it didn't make any sense for Warren Wearsby to go visit that lady late in the afternoon. But it made sense by the evening. You see, when God prompts us to go somewhere to talk to someone, if we don't understand why he's, he's doing that, we have to exercise faith and we have to trust in advance that what God is prompting us to say or to do will make sense one day when we look back on it. And even if it never makes sense to us on this side of heaven, we still have to have faith and we still have to trust that God has a reason for prompting us to do what he's called us to do. So if you want to make leading people to the Lord a lifestyle, you must say yes to God's prompting. And then second, if we want to make leading people to the Lord a lifestyle, we must set no limits on God's grace. We must set no limits on God's grace. And what I mean by that is we must never look at a person and we must never say, well, there's no way God would want to save that person from their sin. Or there's, there's no way God would want to adopt that person into his family. Philip didn't put any limits on God's grace. When Philip got down to the desert road, he met someone who was traveling from Jerusalem to Gaza. And I want you to look at how Luke describes this person in verse 27. Luke says this person, person was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a 
court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. Now, Philip, he could have looked at this guy, and he could have said, an Ethiopian, strike one. A eunuch, strike two. A court official, strike three. This guy's out. There's no way, there's no way this guy's going to become a follower of Jesus. You see, as an Ethiopian, this man would have been a Gentile. That means he wasn't Jewish. And he wasn't even half Jewish like the Samaritans were that Philip had been ministering to. This man was a full-blooded Gentile. And for the most part, Jewish people didn't think God would ever want anything to do with Gentiles, not in a million years. In fact, there were even restrictions in Jerusalem on how close a Gentile could get to the temple. So Philip, who had a Jewish background, he could have looked at the guy and he could have said, an Ethiopian, a Gentile, eh, God's not going to want this guy. God's not going to give him faith to believe if I tell him about Jesus. Philip could have said that, but he didn't. And then Luke tells us that the man was a eunuch. That means the man was castrated. In other words, some of his private parts had been cut off. Now, before you put your fingers in your ears and tell me to stop, I want you to know there's a reason why Luke gives us this detail. This is God's word, and God doesn't waste any words. So if that word's in there, it's in there for a reason. You see, if you go back to the Old Testament, if you go back to, to Deuteronomy chapter 23 and look at verse 1, it says, no one whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. That means under the old covenant that God established with the Jewish people, a eunuch could not join the people of God when they worshipped at the temple of God. You see, castration was common among the pagans, especially among the royal officials. And, and so God put this restriction on his people in the Old Testament because he didn't want his people acting like pagans. Well, anyways, at the end of verse 27, we're told that this, this eunuch had gone to Jerusalem to worship. And somehow he had heard about the God of Israel. Most likely when the, when the Queen of Sheba came to visit King Solomon a thousand years prior to this, most likely she took what she learned about the God of Israel back to Sheba, which was part of Ethiopia. And most likely what she shared got passed down through the generations until it reached this man's ears. And so this eunuch heard about the God of Israel, and, and he wanted to go to Jerusalem to see for himself and to worship this God. But when he got to Jerusalem, he would have found out that his, his physical condition prevented him from joining the people of God and fully participating in the worship there. Now, Philip, he would have known what God said in the Old Testament. So Philip could have looked at this guy and said, a eunuch? Nah, God doesn't want him. It's not worth telling this guy about Jesus. But Philip didn't say that. And now you might be thinking, well, how would Philip have known that this guy was a eunuch? Well, based on the man's clothing, based on his chariot, based on his entourage, Philip would have been able to tell that this man was some kind of royal official. And like I said, many royal officials in, in Bible times, they were eunuchs. If you read through the book of Esther, you'll see that. Okay, many royal officials in the Bible times, they were eunuchs because their inability to have children made it less likely that they would want to rise up and overthrow the king and establish a dynasty of their own. And it made it less likely that they would want to, to take the king's wives and and do some things with them. So Philip would have been able to tell that this guy was a royal official, and by, by seeing that he was a royal official, he would have been able to come to the conclusion that he was a eunuch as well. Now, actually, being a royal official, that could have been strike three in Philip's mind. You know, Philip could have said, oh, a high-ranking government official and a rich guy. We know this guy had to be rich because he had a scroll of the book of Isaiah, and those were very expensive back in this day. So Philip could have said, oh, a high-ranking government official and a rich guy, he's not going to want to hear about Jesus. This guy's probably content with his life. 
He has power. He has prestige. He has money. He has men that serve him. A guy like this isn't going to want want to hear about Jesus. A guy like this isn't going to want to follow Jesus. Philip could have said that, but he didn't. You see, Philip didn't set any limits on God's grace. Philip believed that God can save anyone, even an Ethiopian eunuch, from the elite class of society. And that's because Philip understood something. He understood that in Christ, everyone is invited to come to God. And Philip understood that in Christ, there isn't anyone whose soul God is unwilling or unable to save. I want to tell you about a guy named David Wood. When David Wood was a young man, he was an atheist. That means he didn't believe that God existed. And with that worldview, he thought that human beings were nothing but a a bunch of bits and pieces of organic matter that had somehow assembled themselves together. And so as an atheist with that worldview, David didn't see any value in people. And he didn't see any meaning to life. And he didn't see any reason for morality. And so this, this worldview, it led David to become a sociopath. And he felt little or no guilt about harming others. And one day when David was 18 years old, he decided just for fun he wanted to kill his father. And so in the middle of the night when his father was sound asleep, David grabbed a hammer and he started bashing his, head, his father's head over and over with it. He thought he killed him, but he didn't. His, his father survived the attack. But David ended up in prison as a result of that. And when David ended up in prison, he met a guy named Randy. And Randy was a Christian, and, and he quickly became the target of David's ridicule. Now, David thought that Randy would either recant or retreat when he ridiculed him, but Randy didn't do that. The more David ridiculed Randy, the more Randy shared Jesus with him. You see, Randy didn't set any limits on God's grace. He believed that God could save anyone, even an atheistic sociopath who had tried to murder his father. Well, in the course of time, guess what happened? David became a Christian through Randy's influence. But the story doesn't end there. Once David got out of prison, he wanted to, he wanted to go to college and he wanted to get a job. And so he enrolled at Old Dominion University. And while he was there... A devout Muslim in his class started challenging his faith. And this, this Muslim thought that David would either recant or retreat when he challenged his faith. But David didn't do that. The more this Muslim challenged David's faith, the more David shared Jesus with his Muslim. David didn't set any limits on God's grace. He believed that God could save anyone, even a devout Muslim who was the smartest guy in the whole university. Well, in the course of time, guess what happened? That Muslim became a Christian through David's influence. And you may have heard of that Muslim who became a Christian. His name was Nabil Qureshi. Nabil went on to become a world-renowned Christian apologist, and he wrote a New York Times best-selling book called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. Now, unfortunately, Nabil died a few years ago at the age of 34 from stomach cancer. But the chain of events that led to his conversion shows us that there are no limits when it comes to God's grace. You see, if David can save or if God can save David Wood, and if God can save Nabil Qureshi, I mean, really, for that matter, if God can save me, then God can save anyone. So I want to ask you, is there someone that, that you think is beyond the reaches of God's grace? Maybe it's your neighbor from another faith. Maybe it's your atheistic or agnostic spouse. Maybe it's your wayward child. Maybe, it, maybe it's a friend, friend or a family member who's caught in addiction. I want you to know that no one is beyond the reaches of God's grace. So let's not put any limits on God's grace.
when Randy saw David Wood in prison, he didn't set any limits on God's grace. When David Wood saw Nabil Qureshi in class, he didn't set any limits on God's grace. When Philip saw the Ethiopian on the road from Jerusalem to Gaza, he didn't set any limits on God's grace. And because these three men didn't set any limits on God's grace, each one was able to lead a lost sinner to the Lord. You see, to make leading people to the Lord a lifestyle, we must set no limits on God's grace. And then third, if we're going to make leading people to the Lord a lifestyle, we must share the good news about God's Son. We have to share the good news about God's Son. Philip did this. If you look at verse 29, the Spirit tells Philip to go over and join the Ethiopian's chariot. So in verse 30, Philip once again says yes to God, and he runs up to the Ethiopian's chariot. And when he gets there, he hears the Ethiopian reading from the book of Isaiah. And these days, people typically read out loud. And so as Philip approaches the chariot, he can hear the guy reading from the book of Isaiah, and he recognizes it. It's, it's Isaiah chapter 53 that this guy is reading, which is all about God's suffering servant. And when Philip hears the Ethiopian reading this passage of Scripture, he asks him in verse 30 if he understands what he's reading. Now in verse 31, the Ethiopian says he needs someone to, to explain it to him. And then after quoting the passage that the Ethiopian was reading, Luke tells us in verse 34 that the Ethiopian asked Philip, who is the author talking about? You see, back in the first century, the Jews argued over whether the, the passage in Isaiah 53 was talking about Isaiah suffering for God, or if it was talking about the nation of Israel suffering for God, or if it was talking about the Messiah suffering for God. There was a big debate back in those days. Well, Philip knew the answer. Philip knew that in the ultimate sense, Isaiah 53 is talking about how God's Messiah would suffer to pay the price for our sins. And Philip knows that Jesus is God's Messiah. So in verse 35, Luke tells us that Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with that passage of Scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. That's the key to leading people to the Lord right there. To lead someone to the Lord, we must engage that person in a conversation and turn that conversation to Jesus so that we can share the good news. Now, Philip had a softball thrown him, to him out there on the, on the road from Jerusalem to Gaza. I mean, the, the, the Ethiopian, he was reading Isaiah 53, which is one of the clearest and most beautiful prophecies about Jesus Christ. And, and he asked Philip, who's this talking about? It wasn't hard for Philip to turn the conversation to Jesus from there. And if we're throwing a softball like that, hopefully we'll hit it out of the park just like Philip did. But what if we're engaged in a conversation that's a million miles away from Jesus? What do we do then? Well, what we need to do is we need to think about how we can build bridges from whatever it is we are talking about to Jesus. I have a friend back in Maryland who's an excellent evangelist. Leading, pe leading people to the Lord is a lifestyle for him. So if there was a show on TV today called, you know, Lifestyles of Those Who Lead People to the Lord, this guy would be on it. And my friend told me one time that he and another friend of his, they play a game where one of them will start talking about a random subject, and then the other one, in the course of the ensuing conversation, has to try to bridge to the gospel, has to try to make a connection to Jesus. So, so for example, one of them might say, wow, that hamburger I ate last night, that was amazing. And then the other person would have to respond to that, and as the conversation unfolded, he would have to try to build a bridge to Jesus. And my friend says, it sounds like a silly exercise. But, he says, this has really helped me develop the skill of building bridges to the gospel when I'm in a conversation with someone. It's just kind of trained my mind to think that way. And I've seen my friend in action. One time I was out with him, 
and we were at a park and we were just striking up conversations with people and we got to talking to this guy and, and this guy told us that he likes to read and we said oh what do you like to read and he says murder mysteries well without missing a beat my friend says to the guy well have you ever read this story about about this left-handed guy named Ehud who killed the king of Eglon and for a long time nobody knew what happened to the king and his servants are running around you know wondering what to do they think he's you know in the bathroom for a long time and and finally, they get up the nerve to go and check on him. And, and when they go to check on him, they find that the king's dead and Ehud had escaped. You ever read that? I was like, no, I never read that story. Where, where's the, where, you know, what's the title of that book? Oh, well, it's in the book of Judges. It's in the Bible. And then he asked them, he said, well, have you ever read about the killing of Jesus Christ that's in the Bible? And the guy said, no, I never, I never read that either. And so right there, the door was wide open for us to share the good news about Jesus with this guy. And we did. You see, to make leading people to the Lord a lifestyle, we have to share the good news about God's Son. And so that means we need to work at turning everyday conversations to Jesus. So you can practice playing that game. Practice playing that game with your spouse. You know, parents, you can practice playing that game with your kids. Practice with a friend. Train your mind to think, how can I move this conversation from, from the surface level physical things that we so often talk about to the deeper spiritual things that matter for eternity? And it might seem silly and awkward at first, but if you keep practicing, it'll become second nature. And soon you'll be able to turn conversations about leading murder mysteries into conversations about God's Son. So to make people, or to make leading people to the Lord a lifestyle, we have to be able to share the good news about God's Son. And then fourth, if we're going to lead people to the Lord, if we're going to make that a lifestyle, we must spell out the next steps in God's plan. We have to spell out the next steps in God's plan. You see, Jesus commanded us to make disciples. So if we're going to lead people to the Lord in such a way that they become disciples, in other words, that they become fully committed followers of Jesus, if we're going to do that, if we're going to make disciples, we need to tell people what that commitment involves. In other words, we have to spell out the next steps in God's plan. And Philip did this. If you look at verse 36, Luke says, As they were going down the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? Philip had just told this Ethiopian about Jesus, and he had just told this Ethiopian about how anyone can come to God through faith in Jesus. And in the course of that conversation, Philip would have explained to this man that if he, if he puts his faith in Jesus, the very next step that he should take is to get baptized. And that's because this is the way Jesus wants us to identify ourselves as his followers. And so when, when the Ethiopian sees some water, he knows that the next step that he's going to have to take if he's going to put his faith in Jesus is to get baptized. So he asks Philip, he says, well, is there anything that would prevent me from getting baptized? That's a good question on the part of the Ethiopian. Okay, remember, this man's race and this man's physical condition had prevented him from fully participating in the worship at the temple of God in Jerusalem. So he's asking, well, is there anything that's going to prevent me from coming to Jesus? Is there anything that would prevent me from publicly identifying myself as a follower of Jesus? Now, Luke doesn't record it, but I'm sure Philip explained to the Ethiopian that once, that once we're in Christ, there's nothing that prevents us from coming to God and worshiping him. In Christ, our race doesn't prevent us from coming to God. Our physical condition doesn't prevent us from coming to God. Our status in society doesn't prevent us from coming to God. Anyone who is in Christ has access to God. That's the good news of the gospel. And I'm sure Philip explained this to the Ethiopian because in verse 38, 
Philip orders the chariot to stop, and he takes the Ethiopian down into the water, and he baptizes him. You see, when a person puts their faith in Jesus and commits to following him, the very first step that the Bible says they should take is they should get baptized. In a few weeks, we're going to have a baptism service here. And so if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, but you have not publicly identified yourself as his follower by getting baptized, we'd love to talk to you about that. We'd love for you to take that first step of obedience that Jesus would call you to take. Now, after getting baptized, there's some additional steps that a believer should take to help them grow in their relationship with Christ. And we have to explain these steps to new believers as well, because, again, Jesus commanded us to make disciples. And disciples are people who are growing in a relationship with Jesus. They're people who are becoming more and more like him. And so this is why it's important that we have to explain, you know, that, that when you become a follower of Jesus, it's important to read your Bible every day. It's important to establish a regular time of prayer. We have to explain that it's important to join a city group, like you'll have the opportunity to do today, and to find a ministry to serve in. And we have to explain the importance of, of going out to share our faith, as Jesus commanded us to do. And so here at City View Church, we have, we have some books that we give to new believers that spell out some of these next steps that they should take. Now, we don't just give these books out to, to new believers and say, well, here, read this. Now, what we do is we try to pair new believers up with someone who can mentor them and go through that book with them and help explain those next steps to them. If it's a child who comes to faith in Christ, we'll, we'll typically ask the parents to go through that book with them. If it's an adult who comes to faith in Christ, we'll try to pair that adult up with, with another adult, someone who can help guide them in taking those next steps. Because that's what we have to do. If we're going to make leading people to the Lord a lifestyle, we have to spell out the next steps in God's plan. And then last but not least, if we're going to make leading people to the Lord a lifestyle, we must stay committed to God's mission. We must stay committed to God's mission. You see, God's on a mission to build his kingdom. And the way God accomplishes his mission is he sends us out to tell others about Jesus, and then he gives them faith to believe when we do. Now, sometimes we'll face setbacks when we do this. Sometimes people won't want to hear what we have to say about Jesus. Or sometimes people will, will say they believe in Jesus, and they might even get baptized and start hanging out in the church, but then over time their actions will show that their profession of faith wasn't really genuine. That happened to Philip. You remember last week we saw Philip, uh, when he talked to the Simon the magician, Philip told Simon about Jesus, and Simon said he believed, and he got baptized, and he was hanging out with the believers there. But then based on his subsequent actions, it doesn't seem that Simon's profession of faith was genuine. Now, I'm sure it was discouraging to Philip when he saw that. And I'm sure Philip had other encounters where people didn't accept the message and they didn't become followers of Christ. But Philip never gave up. Philip continued to share the good news about Jesus wherever he went. After Philip baptized the Ethiopian in verse 39, it says the eunuch continued on his way rejoicing, but the Spirit carried Philip away. And verse 40 says that the Spirit carried Philip away to a city called Azotus. Now, again, I don't know if you can see it on the map, but Azotus is a little bit north of Gaza, right there on the coast of the, the Mediterranean. And I don't know how this worked. I don't, I don't know how the Spirit carried Philip from the, from the desert road over to Azotus. Sounds to me like some kind of supernatural event took place there. So the details of how Philip got to Azotus might not be clear, 
But what Philip did when he got there, that is clear. Once the, once the Spirit brought Philip to Azotus, verse 40 says that he traveled up the coast to Caesarea. That's about a 40-mile journey that Philip took. And I want you to look at what Philip did as he passed through the towns and villages along the way. Verse 40 says, as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. You see, if Philip suffered any setbacks as he told people about Jesus, he didn't let that stop him. He stayed committed to God's mission. That's why 20 years later in Acts 21.8, Philip is called Philip the Evangelist. Philip stayed committed to God's mission. And he stayed committed to God's mission because, because he understood an important truth. He didn't let setbacks stop him because he understood that it was his job to share the good news and that it was God's job to turn people's hearts and give them faith to believe. So Philip knew that his job was to share and to trust God with the results. And so he didn't let setbacks slow him down, and he stayed committed to God's mission. And so, friends, I want, I want you to know that each and every one of us has to stay committed to God's mission. We can't let setbacks stop us. Wherever we go, we must tell people about Jesus. So when we go to the store or to the ball field, we've got to talk about Jesus. When we go out in our neighborhood or into our workplace, we've got to share the good news about Jesus. Go to the beach or to the mountains or some other place on vacation, we've got to go and try to lead people to the Lord. Wherever we go, we've got to tell people about Jesus. And I want to tell you about a guy who is committed to God's mission. I want to tell you a guy who gets this. Just last week, Amy was working with a patient over at Hendricks Hospital, and this patient's son was there. He had come in all the way from Texas to visit his mom in the hospital. And after fin Amy finished working with the patient, the son said, I'd like to give you a gift before you leave. And he handed her this small package that had some candy in it, along with a New Testament and a gospel tract that looked like a million-dollar bill. You see, this man came all the way to Hendricks County to visit his mom in the hospital. But he came to do more than that. He came here to lead people to the Lord. And I can't help but wonder what kind of reward is this man going to receive when he stands before Jesus someday? Because he's obviously making an effort to lead people to the Lord and to have that characterize his lifestyle. Friends, leading people to the Lord should be a lifestyle for every follower of Jesus. And if we want to make leading people to the Lord a lifestyle, we must say yes to God's prompting. We must set no limits on God's grace. We must share the good news about Jesus. We must spell out the next steps in God's plan, and we must stay committed to God's mission. Now, maybe you're here today. Maybe you're here today and no one has ever led you to the Lord. We would love to introduce you to him. We'd love to tell you how you can find forgiveness in Jesus Christ. If you want to know more about what it means to put your faith in Jesus Christ and what it means to follow him, tell someone here. We'd love to talk to you about that. We'd love for you to walk out of here knowing that your sins have been forgiven and that you have peace with God. Will you pray with me now? Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning that you have a mission to establish and to build your kingdom here on this earth. And we thank you that you sent your son Jesus 2,000 years ago who came and began that process. And Lord, as we're seeing here in the book of Acts, that process of building your kingdom and expanding your kingdom is still going on. And Lord, we thank you that you've called 
people like us to join you in that work. We thank you, Lord, that you've, that you've given us the privilege of being able to lead people to the Lord so that they can find forgiveness for their sins and so that they can have peace with you so that their hearts can be made new. And so, Father, this morning I pray that you would help us to do what Jesus has called us to do, and that is to make disciples wherever we go. And if we're going to do that, we need to be able to lead people to the Lord. We need to, we need to make that a lifestyle of ours. That's what should characterize us. So, God, I pray that you would, that you would give us faith to say yes when you prompt us to go somewhere or to speak to someone. Father, I pray that we wouldn't set any limits on your grace. I pray that we would never look at a person and say, there's no way God would want that person in his family. Lord, help us to have a better understanding of your grace and your power and your ability to save. And Father, I pray that you would give us courage and clarity to open our mouths like Philip did and to share the good news about Jesus. And then to help people take those next steps so that they can be in a growing relationship with Christ and to become more like him. Father, I pray that we would all be taking steps to grow in our relationship with Christ and that each and every day we would be coming more and more like your son. And Father, help us to stay committed to your mission. Help us as individuals and help us as a church to never lose sight of what you've called us to do. Help us to never lose sight of the purpose that we have and that the reason you've left us here on this earth after, after we've put our faith in Christ is to help others to know him. So Lord God, I pray that you would give us opportunities this week even to lead people to the Lord. I pray that in Jesus' name.